And welcome back to Behind the Crime. I'm Ella Kalora. And I'm Rebecca Wood. And we're your hosts of Behind the Crime. This week, we're going to be talking about two different crimes that took place over spring break. We're recording this the week before we're on spring break. But when you're listening to it, we will be on spring break. Yeah, we're currently in midterm week. So how are you feeling? Um, <laughs> I'm all right. I'm ready to go home. I'm ready for spring break, even though I'm not really doing anything crazy. I'm just going to be home with my dog. Yeah, And probably here. working. I'm ready to go home, though. Yeah. But we're going to record one more episode for you guys. Yes. And we'll come back ready for more. Yes. So I'm going first this week. As Becky said, both of our cases happened over spring break. My case is the case of Brittany Drexel. This happened in 2009. So Brittany was born on October 7th, 1991 in Rochester, New York. She was born to her parents, John and Don, who, it does rhyme. <laughs> they were teenagers when they had Brittany, and they weren't married, so they actually split. And her mom, Don, remarried to Chad Drexel, who adopted Brittany, and that's, she took his last name. Mm-hmm. So April 2009, Brittany is 17 years old and spring break is coming up and she asks her mom if she can go to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina over spring break with her boyfriend and a couple of her girlfriends. Her mom said no because she didn't know the other teens and there wasn't going to be any adult supervision and she said to Brittany that something bad would happen. So her mom said no. This led to arguments between the two. And then on April 22nd, Brittany asked her mom if she could go to a friend's house to calm down since they had been arguing for the past couple of days. So her mom agreed just, you know, because she said no to going to Myrtle Beach. So she figured she could let Brittany go to her friend's house. Mm -hmm. Brittany lied. She did not go to her friend's house. She went to South Carolina Uh with this group of friends without telling her mom. So that day she left for Myrtle Beach with a couple of her friends. And three days later, they arrived at the Bar Harbor Hotel in Myrtle Beach. The day that they got there, which was April 25th, Brittany had called her mom once during the day and she told her mom that she was having fun and that they were going to the beach that day. And her mom assumed that it was a beach along Lake Ontario Mm because that's near Rochester, New York. So she didn't think anything of it and the weather at the time was fairly nice. So her mom didn't think anything of it. Mm. And... Later that night, around 8 p.m., Brittany left her friends at the hotel to visit another one of her friends at Blue Water Resort. The security cameras at Blue Water Resort show Brittany arriving, and they also show her leaving at around 8.45 p.m. She was carrying a beige purse, and she was wearing a black and white tank top 
flip-flops, and shorts. At the time, she was texting her boyfriend, John Greco, who was originally going to go but wound up staying in Rochester for work. And at the time, they were texting pretty consistently. And then around 9.15, texts from Brittany suddenly stopped. And John thought that this was weird. So he started calling her friends that she was with. And they all didn't know where she was and told him that she left. So he started freaking out. Mm. And he then called her mom. That was good of him. Yes. That he did that and didn't, you know. Because a lot of people in that scenario would be like, well, I'm sure she's fine. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get her in trouble. But it's, it's really good that he did that. And honestly, it's surprising because in a lot of cases, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. So he called Brittany's mom, Dawn, and at the time, she still didn't know that Brittany was in Myrtle Beach. So John told her everything that Brittany had lied and that she had been in Myrtle Beach and she had left the hotel and her friends didn't know where she was and that she had stopped texting John. So, Brittany's mom called the police in Rochester, and the Rochester police contacted the police in South Carolina. Um, During that night, multiple calls were made to Brittany's phone from her boyfriend, her friends, her mom, the police, and they all went unanswered. Mm -hmm. So then the next day, Myrtle Beach police began searching And that's when they found the security footage from the hotel. I didn't say this, but her friend that she went to visit, his name is Peter Rozowitz. He's 20 years old, and he was the last person to see her. He and his roommates that he was living with at the time were all questions. Were all, sorry. They were all questioned, and police searched their place. They were all let go and none of them were suspects police also searched her room and didn't find anything out of the ordinary but they couldn't find her purse or her phone so her phone was tracked through the night through the night of april 25th it was tracked 50 to 60 miles south of myrtle beach around the area of u.s route 17 near georgetown charleston And then the morning, April 26th, so the next morning when police started searching, that's when the pings had stopped. They searched for 11 days and nothing turned up. Her mom wound up relocating down there and her mom really thought at the time that it was trafficking, but Mm. no one thought that because there wasn't a high rate of human trafficking down there. I don't know if there is now, but back then there wasn't. So then years went by, and she was never found. Nothing new happened until June of 2016, when police released that they thought she had been murdered. And they put out a $25,000 reward for any info about Brittany and then two months after this happened an inmate named Taquan Brown who was serving 
a sentence for a completely different situation. He claimed that another inmate, Timothy Taylor, had done something to Brittany. So he said, Taquan Brown said, that in 2019, right after Brittany disappeared, he had visited Taylor's father to give him money. And when he went to their house, he saw Taylor, Timothy Taylor, sexually abusing Brittany. And then he had gone into the backyard to pay Timothy Taylor's father the money that he owed him. And he claimed that he saw Brittany run from the house and then she was recaptured. Timothy Taylor brought her back into the house and then he heard two shots, which he assumed was Timothy Taylor killing Brittany. Um, And then he also claimed that he saw a wrapped body being removed and then dumped into an alligator pond nearby. But this story was questioned a little bit at the time because a second inmate who didn't go named said that he saw Brittany with Timothy Taylor, but he claimed that Taylor was trying to sell her for trafficking purposes to a couple of his friends. And he said that he did believe that Taylor killed her, but it was a slightly different story. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the exact same story. So police kind of just set it aside and nothing else was said on the matter. Timothy Taylor was never convicted of anything. So related to this. Yes. He, yeah, related to Brittany Drexel. So then... Years later, in May 2022, so pretty recently, not even a year ago. Yeah. May 2022, Raymond Moody, he's a 62-year-old man, dirt sex offender, turned himself in to Georgetown County Sheriff's Office. And he turned himself in on a charge of obstruction of justice, apparently. But... I also found that police had first considered him back in 2012, so I'm not sure why exactly they stopped pursuing him. Mm. But then on May 4th, 2022, Moody confessed, and he also provided a location of potential remains. Over the next three days, the FBI searched the area, and then found human remains on May 11th. They were located... Yes. Okay. They were buried in the woods off of a gated private driveway outside of Georgetown. They were four feet into the ground, and they were identified as Brittany Drexel by DNA testing. Mm -hmm. Uh, They used some of her teeth. And that was on May 15th. They determined that she was strangled to death and then buried on the morning of April 26th, 2009. How many days after she went missing was that? It was the next day. The next day. I just couldn't remember the date. So it was pretty fast. Yeah. So that means that he picked her up the night of the 25th and then killed her the next morning and buried her right away. So, Moody was charged with murder, kidnapping, and first-degree criminal sexual misconduct. So, on October 19, 2022, Moody pled guilty 
to all charges, and he was sentenced to life with two consecutive terms of 30 years. So uh, luckily they did find him, and he pled guilty, and he was put away. Her remains were given back to her mom, and I believe she took them back to Rochester, New York, to bury her. That's good. See, I when I was trying to find my case for this, I just kept seeing that because there were new developments mm-hmm. in it. Well, yeah, he was f- like fully convicted and like oh yeah, everything done only yeah, very a couple recently. months ago. Yeah, so it was still super big. I'm sure most of you have heard of it. Yeah, because her name was familiar to me even when I first saw that mm-hmm. he was convicted. Yeah, I had heard her story a couple years ago and had seen pictures of her. But yeah, she was only 17 years old. I just think it's the most chilling thing about the case is when her mom first said that she didn't want her to go, that she knew. Yeah, it's like a mother's intuition thing. Yeah, she knew that something was going to happen. And it's also just very... You know, it's a very risky thing, which is kind of why we're doing this episode, because although we don't want to deter anybody from having fun over spring break, it is important to remain cautious. Yeah, be safe. I mean... Don't split up from your group. Yeah, don't split up from your group, because you never know what horrible person is going to come along and do something bad to you. And when you're out of town, you're out of your comfort zone, you're just so much more vulnerable. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you're intoxicated, you're even more vulnerable. So it's really important to be careful. Yeah. She was a young, innocent, 17-year-old girl who just wanted to have fun. And this horrible monster with... Took advantage of her being out of her comfort zone and being so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just be careful who you are around. Mm -hmm. And don't trust anyone and stay with your friends. Yeah. And listen to your mom, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's always going to happen. People are going to disobey their parents, but it's important in general that you listen to them because they know what they're talking about generally. Mm-hmm. They're not just being mean. Yeah, they're not trying to stop you from having fun. They just want you to have fun in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but luckily, luckily she was finally found yeah. and someone was finally convicted and that just gives her family and having closure. you know finding her that gives you a good amount of closure. I mean, I wouldn't know, but it's better than still just unknowing. Yeah, because they went years and they didn't like they couldn't find her. Yeah. So I can't imagine they couldn't have a proper like burial for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So my case happened in 1989. It's the case of Mark Kilroy, who was a senior pre-med student at the University of Texas. You know, now that you say his name again, I do know this case. Oh. I don't know why I thought I didn't. There's just... I know. There there are a lot so of many. cases, but... Yeah. This one is a bit intricate. So I'm going to start with his early life a little bit. He was born on March 5th in 1968 in Chicago. His father is James Kilroy, who was a chemical engineer, and his mother, Helen Kilroy, was a volunteer paramedic. 
they moved to Texas shortly after Mark was born. They moved to Santa Fe, Texas, and they also, a few years, years later, had another son named Keith. Mark grew up in a Catholic family. He excelled in school and sports as a teen. He played basketball, baseball, and golf. He was a Boy Scout and an honors stu- student at Santa Fe High School. He was a member of student council, and he was 14th in his class in high school. So he had a very, very promising future. He, in 1986, attended Southwest Texas State University, but then transferred to transferred to Tarleton State University on a basketball scholarship. And there he joined the Lambda Chi Alpha frat. And then later that year, he gave up on sports and stopped playing basketball and then transferred again for the second time to University of Texas in Austin. And... This was towards the end of his college career, okay. and he wanted to become a pre-med student and prep for the MCAT. So to get into the spring break trip that he went on, Mark Kilroy and three friends drove to Mexico for spring break. It was supposed to be a last like hurrah for all of them. And they didn't go to the same college. They were friends from childhood and played basketball together in high school, I believe. Bradley Moore was a childhood friend of Kilroy, as were the other two, but he finished his midterms early. He went to Texas A&M, and he picked up Kilroy from school. Then later on, picked up the other two, who were Bill Huddleston and Brent Martin. Then they drove to South Padre Island, which is where Texas meets the Gulf of Mexico. And this was all on March 11th, by the way, in 1989. So Sunday was the day after arriving, and the group drove down to Brownsville and then crossed into Mexico to Matamoros. Matamoros is a, or was a booming border town, and it was a super common spring break destination. I don't know if it still is since this all happened, but at the time it was, it was really common to go there for spring break, especially for students in Texas. The main destination is Calle Alvaro Obregón, which is a venue with discos and bars and really cheap alcohol, which is why it's mm-hmm. so popular with students. Yeah. So on their way to the border, they stopped at a burger place. I believe it was in and out actually. And they met four girls that were from Kansas, and the girls asked them for directions to Matamoros, which was where they were going as well. So they planned, the four guys planned to meet up with the four girls at Sergeant Pepper's, which is a club in that area. And Huddleston said the line outside wasn't too bad, but it was pretty crowded at the bar. They drank and danced until 2.30 in the morning and then went back to the hotel that was in Texas, so the other side of the border. Then the next night, the four went to a party hosted by Kilroy's frat brothers and then decided to go back to Matamoros. They parked their car on the American side of the border and walked to the club. On the way, they stopped at a few different clubs, one being El Sombrero. They had a few drinks there and then walked a few more blocks to Hard Rock, another bar that they actually had recently renamed to attract tourists, nor I don't know the previous name. So at Hard Rock, Mark left the group to talk to a girl that he knew 
who won third place at a tanning contest at their hotel. What they did during the day was watch the tanning contests, and then at night they would drive into Mexico and drink. So that night they never made it to Matamoros and headed back to the border after the Hard Rock bar. So they were about 200 feet from the border, and the group stopped so Bill Huddleston could go to the bathroom behind a tree okay because obviously there wasn't really anything nearby and then a man motioned toward them and bill huddleston thought that mark knew him he was quoted saying i thought maybe it was someone mark might have known i heard him say something like didn't i just see you somewhere or where did i see you last so they didn't really think anything of it at first then when huddleston got back to the group kilroy wasn't there still not thinking that much of it because you know they were intoxicated they crossed the border thinking that Kilroy probably was just waiting by the car, but he wasn't there either. And when he wasn't there, they assumed he got a ride to the hotel with someone else since they thought the guy that motioned towards them was somebody he knew. They probably thought it was maybe one of his frat brothers, something like that. Yeah. They woke up the next morning, and when Kilroy was still gone, they reported him as missing. They immediately knew once he wasn't there in the morning that something was wrong. Mm-hmm. It was apparently very common for college kids to be reported missing in that area and then turn up the next day hungover or with no memory. So at first, the police didn't think much of it. But they quickly realized that it was different and both Mexican and American police suspected foul play but didn't have any leads, like any strong leads. Mm -hmm. So Donald Wells was the U.S. consul in Matamoros. And police contacted him, and he circulated Mark Kilroy's description to jails and hospitals in case he had gotten arrested for some reason or he got hurt and he was in the hospital so they would at least know where he was. But that didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. He wasn't at any hospitals or in any jails. And Kilroy's parents also posted 20,000 flyers in the Rio Grande Valley, and they offered a $15,000 reward. But once again, nothing turned up. Mexican and American police then began to suspect black magic was involved with the disappearance. A psychic actually reported seeing Kilroy's body next to a witch's cauldron. And a Satanist, a known Satanist, confessed to Kilroy's murder and said that he buried him on the beach. But later, when he was actually brought into questioning, he said it was, he lied and just made it up. Like, for no, I don't know if he had a reason, but there was no reason given, so he just did it just to do it. Yeah. So they were still chasing the lead of a satanic ritual being to blame. On April 11th, 1989, U.S.-Mexico authorities expanded their anti-drug operations in the area and arrested a, a known drug dealer named Serafin Hernandez-Garcia. Serafin was a student with a major in law enforcement, which is interesting. But he was a drug dealer? Yeah, and he was okay. the nephew of the of a gang leader. Okay. So he was the nephew of Elio Hernandez Rivera, who was the gang's leader. It was the Hernandez gang. That was what it was known as. So Garcia, once he was arrested, he admitted to growing marijuana on his family property. And police went to the ranch and found 75 pounds of marijuana and what an unnamed officer called a human slaughterhouse Oh, on the property. Garcia converted to Palo Mayombe, 
to please his uncle Elio, who was more like a brother figure than an uncle figure because he was only two years older. And he said that he noticed his grades improved after embracing the religion, but he only did it for his uncle's sake because it was what the gang in general kind of practiced. I'll get into this a little bit more later, but the gang essentially became a cult for this. They said that they were following Paolo Mayombe, but they really weren't. I'll get Mm -hmm. more into it later, but the leader of the cult basically was making it up as he went along. So people who really practice the religions that they base their beliefs off of, like voodoo and Santeria, they don't sacrifice people. Mm-hmm. That is, Those are the people who are misusing that religion. I would just want to make that very clear, that it's not the religion is not to blame. It's these people. Yeah. So to get into the human slaughterhouse that they found... They found 15 bodies that were dismembered and left buried in shallow graves. 15? 15. That was just on Garcia's property. Wow. And, you know, it wasn't just him. Like, it was his whole family knew about it, really. The victims were either shot, burned, or killed with a machete. So that was their possible causes of death. Kilroy, his cause of death was the machete. Kilroy, among others, had their hearts ripped out for the sacrifice others were missing eyes and or ears and Kilroy also had his legs amputated at the knees what yeah so Kilroy's legs were cut off his heart was ripped out and his brain was found in a shack boiled in a pot with a roasted turtle whoa it was really sick what they like beyond just killing them that's crazy yeah Luckily for Kilroy, they did all of this postmortem, so he wasn't alive for it, which that, you know, that's not really lucky, but it's just better that he didn't go through that pain. Yeah, at least he wasn't in pain. Yeah. But, well, in. It could, yeah. I know. Like, he, not saying that he wasn't in pain. Obviously, he was in pain. Because Um, they're apparently. But. There were some people who, there was one case where the leader of the cult did rip somebody's heart out of his chest while he was alive. What? Yeah. This, the guy, I'll get into him later, but he was really, really sick. My jaw is to the floor. Yeah. So. I, I, I know I said I knew this case, but I didn't know that side of the case. Like, I just knew about Mark. Yeah. And that, like. It was, it was in a gang. that area. Yeah. It's a lot. I didn't know those details. That's crazy. That's yeah. That's so... That is so awful. I know. I just... I can't even think of, like, a strong enough word that is so... No. I know. There's not a strong enough word, really. Mexican authorities, actually, once they discovered the shack that had a bunch of other like symbols and you could tell there were a lot of different ritual items there Mm -hmm. they paused the investigation which the u.s authorities obviously didn't want to but because of the culture that goes around it they had to wait until the black magic could be neutralized by a white magic practitioner which you know didn't take a lot of time so once they did that the investigation proceeded and the pot that kilroy's brain was found in was known as a blood cauldron and members of the cult would drink out of it once it was 
cooked. Just why they thought it would make them successful. Yeah, there's there's no really actually good reason other than they wanted to be rich and successful in the drug cartel industry, and they were for the most part. So they felt like this was working, so they kept doing it. That's... Yeah. A caretaker was questioned by police, and he identified a photo of Kilroy and remembered seeing him handcuffed in the back of a Suburban in the equipment yard. And he actually was left there overnight, and this caretaker went to him and fed him breakfast and gave him water when the actual members of the gang just, like, left him there overnight. You know, you obviously have to wish he did more, but... Yeah, like, help him escape. That's awful. Yeah, but he probably thought that if he did any more to help him that they would go after him and his family. You know, you, you still wish that he would have done more, but... Honestly, working there, it was probably a common thing for him to see. So he wasn't surprised. I can't imagine. Yeah. So Serafin Hernandez-Garcia, Elio Hernandez-Rivera, his uncle, and two others of the gang were arrested and in questioning. And they, all four of them, admitted to the kidnapping of Kilroy and witnessing his sacrifice, but not to his actual murder. They said that it wasn't them. Garcia admitted to burying Kilroy and even led him to his grave. And the grave was marked by a piece of wire that was sticking out of the ground. And the wire was tied to Kilroy's spine so that once his body decomposed, they could pull it out and use his vertebrae to make necklaces. What? Mm-hmm. To protect them from spirits. What? Yeah. That is disgusting. That is so... I know. I I, I and, can't think of a strong enough word. I know. That is and when you look at these awful. religions, they do animal sacrifices, which is obviously up for debate, but nothing compared to human sacrifices. That is a human Because that is not being. part of the religion at all. So it was this gang and this cult leader just manipulating it to do what they wanted. That's insane. So... Garcia also admitted that Kilroy's leg amputation wasn't part of the ritual, and it was done just to make him easier to bury. Most of the bodies were dismembered, so it would just be easier. What? And according to police, Garcia was remorseless and nonchalant when he explained what he did and seemed more to care about the fact that he was the forced labor he was had to do to bury the bodies in the hot sun. So he was more upset about that than the actual act that he was doing. If you... You killed someone. He doesn't think he did it because he did, wasn't the one who actually did the final it thing. It doesn't matter. I know. But he he just does not seem to care. He was like, well, I was following the religion and my grades got better, so... So it was working. Garcia then said that the gang followed Adolfo Constanzo. That was the cult leader... It was his instructions to perform this ritual of butchering people in exchange for success and protection from spirits. Also, after he was kidnapped and before killing him, the gang gang members did sexually assault him as well, which had nothing to do with the ritual, which further proves that it had nothing to do with the ritual, really. It was just they're sick. Yeah. They just wanted to do what they wanted to do. 
So Adolfo Constanzo was from Miami, but apparently previously he was he was from Cuba and grew up there, but then moved to Miami. And he was raised practicing witchcraft, mostly Santeria and voodoo. But then he began to make money off of it after he moved to Mexico City, and he manipulated the religion of Palo Mayombe to fit his own murderous desires. Never once in any of those religions are you supposed to sacrifice human beings. Never. And in most of them, you're not even supposed to sacrifice animals either. So he was just really... So he was just making it up. Yeah, he literally, once he kind of got this cult following, he just made the rules up as he wanted. And businessmen and cartel members were his best customers. They paid for Palo Mayombe sacrifices, which they believe protected them from spirits and nurtured their careers. So Constanzo became the gang's high priest, and he had them refer to him as the godfather. I think in Spanish it was El Padrino. So it was an exchange for a portion of their drug profits. He made up the gang's religion using aspects from Palomayombe, Santeria, and Voodoo. Those were the three main religions that he manipulated. And he basically, he said he was practicing Palomayombe, but he really wasn't. He basically just made it up as he went and everybody just followed along. So... One of his most dedicated members was a Texas Southmost College student named Sarah Aldrete, who was 24, and his other strongest followers were gang members of the Hernandez gang. And Sarah Aldrete, everybody was surprised when they found out that she was part of it. She was later arrested, Mm -hmm. um, but she, she was just not suspected to be doing anything like this but every single night she drove into mexico and prayed at a bloody altar yeah and participated in kidnappings she even we know for a fact that she picked one of the targets that they sacrificed like she handpicked him and it was supposedly somebody that insulted her so the cult took their victims off the streets and their most common targets were intoxicated tourists, making Mark Kilroy the perfect target. Mm-hmm. So Garcia and another gang member, Torres, was the only name I could find for him, kidnapped Kilroy together. But Kilroy escaped only a couple miles down the road because Garcia went behind a tree to relieve himself. And I guess Torres just locked track of him. But a second car full of gang members were right behind them, so they caught him. And they handcuffed him in the backseat this time so he couldn't escape. And this was when they left him overnight in the Suburban. And the caretaker helped him in the morning, kind of. So then Constanzo had one of his followers shoot him before he could be arrested for his crimes. Once Kilroy was found, he just had them kill him so that that he didn't have to be tried. Mm Mm-hmm. And later on, the government actually burned down the whole ranch and the shack because they just wanted to be rid of the evil spirits and just what was done there. So it was also believed that Constanzo was involved in at least eight other murders that were unrelated to the Hernandez gang. Sarah Aldrete and four other cult members were arrested and sentenced to between 30 and 60 years in prison. Juan Benitez was the commander of the Mexican officers who discovered the human slaughterhouse, and he had just waged a war on drugs and the cartel, 
and so far had been very successful. And this whole discovery took down the Hernandez gang. Like, they did not rise back up after this because just so many people were arrested. Good. And essentially their leader, Constanzo, was dead now. So they didn't really have the same leader left over. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk about the media aspect for a while because this story had a lot of traction and it was handled differently Mm -hmm. just because it wasn't didn't take place in just one country you know yeah like victims and perpetrators were both from mexico and from the united states the media was quick to grab onto the story and authorities accommodated the media more in this case than others because it was so prominent even oprah was making phone calls to talk about this story oh wow yeah And U.S. Customs emphasized that drugs and the cartel were to blame for this atrocity, not black magic or the religion, because ultimately it was people who did this out of greed for money and because they were selling drugs. Mm -hmm. It really comes down to that. And a lieutenant for the Cameron County Sheriff's Department was asked how confessions were gathered so quickly by the federales, which were the people in Mexico. And when he was asked this, he pointed at a bottle of mineral water and said federales like to shake bottles and squirt the water up the nose of reluctant witnesses. I don't know how true that is, but I thought that was a very odd thing to say. Yeah. So I wanted to include it. And then they also held press conferences twice a day in Brownsville, which was where their hotel was, I believe. And politicians actually used this case to boost their own campaigns. One example of this was a legislator who announced he would introduce a new law to allow the killers of Mark Kilroy to be tried in Texas for capital murder, even though the killings occurred in Mexico, where they have no capital punishment. So a lot of people use this for their own gain, which is unsettling because it's like it was already such a sick thing and there were so many victims Mm -hmm. and, you know... It was just, like, not appropriate to use it, like, for your election, you know? Yeah. There were 250 international journalists jammed in the courtyard at federal headquarters in Mexico. And the four suspects of the gang that were in custody appeared on the balcony and answered questions. And they also, at the time, had warrants for seven others out for their arrest. So the four suspects answered questions and seemed eager to confess to the role they played in the sacrifices. Sick. Yep. Elio Hernandez, who was the gang leader, said he was an ordained executioner priest by the cult's high priest and godfather, who was Adolfo Constanzo, who was now dead. Constanzo executed Kilroy himself, and it was on his direct order that Kilroy be kidnapped. He sent the gang members to find an American college student for the ritual by the border. Elio also had satanic symbols branded on his arms, chest, and back, and he was very proudly showing them Mm. to the reporters. And a Mexican reporter quoted Elio Hernandez saying, Go ahead, your bullets will just bounce off, challenging commanders to shoot him. This goes back to the power that he thought he had because of... Because of the sacrifices. The sacrifices. He thought he was protected. He thought he would be successful. But he's in jail. Yeah. So in the U.S., this was branded a story about drugs and cartels by the federal government. But Mexican journalists saw this story 
as a story of magic. Mexican newspapers publish details beyond what's typical in the U.S. and even publish photos of the corpses found. What? Yeah. Like, they were very, very graphic with it. They... Mm. I know. And I felt uncomfortable saying how much I said, you know, so I can't imagine... Yeah. I would, like, look at I don't even want to see those pictures. No. They, you know, it... But I, I don't know if that's typical or not you it know just, what i mean because i don't really it feels unnecessary it yeah. is unnecessary yeah but i just thought that was an interesting thing to include and a new york times journalist i forgot this actually interviewed sergio martinez who was one of the gang members who led police to the 13th body she interviewed him while he was digging up the body for the police he was adamant that he didn't kill anybody, but that he did bury bodies and assist in kidnapping. While he dug the grave up, journalists interviewed him in Spanish because she was fluent. And when she was asked what he said, she said Martinez said he doesn't know why he did it. And that's the, that's the case. Wow. Yeah. That is crazy Sorry. and so sick. I know. And the thing is, I just can't help but feel like they didn't get everybody who had something to do with it. Because there were just so many yeah. people. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'd have that they to didn't. track everybody who drank out of that pot, everybody who was in the two cars that assisted in the kidnappings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and not only, like, finding everyone who was involved in it, but also yeah. the amount of victims. I'm sure that not— Fifteen just related to this gang, but related to Adolfo, over 25 yeah, but who's to say that there's not more, exactly. especially, like, at the ranch, like, they were all buried, and if a lot of them were dismembered, then who's to say that there wasn't more? Yeah. And it's just crazy, because so many of these people will not get the closure that Mark's family was able to get, fortunately. Oh, mm -hmm. and I also didn't write this down, but I did read that his family was very positive, at all the press conferences, they basically said that they weren't angry and they hope that his killers find him in heaven and apologize to him. Hmm. I mean, maybe they felt that he was owed an apology more than they were, you know? Yeah. I mean, um, it's... Everybody grieves differently. Yeah. But it's it's always like... It's just interesting to see different ways that families grieve. Yeah, react. But at least they got the, the closure, closure that they just deserve. Just like Brittany's family. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. If anyone is going anywhere for spring break, like we said, stay mm -hmm. with your group of friends. Make sure you're Or being with your safe. family. Make sure you're being safe. If you're drinking, have somebody in your group who is not drinking. Yes. That is what will protect you the most. And don't leave your group. Stay in contact with your parents. Share your location with people. Yeah. Keep think your phone else. charged. Yeah. Keep your phone charged. Just be smart. Yeah. I think that wraps up our episode. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Yeah. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at behind underscore the crime. She did it. I did it without any help. Yeah. Today we actually posted on our stories our process of recording. 
Yeah, and if you haven't listened to our past two episodes, it was a two-parter, so make sure you didn't miss the second part because we posted two weeks in a row. And we'll go back to our regular every other week, but make sure you didn't miss that special two-parter and make sure to follow us on Instagram so you stay up to date and see all of our stories. And we'll post our sources for this as well. Yeah. Like we do with all our cases. So... We'll see you next time. Bye.